three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by journalist and the author of The Sunny Nihilist, Wendy Seifert. Wendy and I explore issues including how a belief in nihilism can free you from many of the struggles in your daily life, how the hopelessness of the climate change crisis, the corrosive divide in our politics, and the never-ending pandemic are making young people consider becoming nihilists, whether it's possible for people who believe in nihilism to fall in love, and finally, why you don't have to surrender your belief in God to be a nihilist. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. What's going on, guys? I hope everyone's having an amazing day and that you're all staying healthy out there. Um, I'm recording this at the end of 2021, right before the new year, and Omicron, uh, the Omicron variant of COVID is extremely prevalent right now, particularly in, um, well, in the States, but in New York where I'm currently recording this. Uh, there's just an, an unprecedented amount of COVID cases. I think I think I was reading like three quarters of them are Omicron, and um, you know it's unfortunate. I mean, this is seemingly the pandemic that will never end. I mean, I remember back in I think it was February of 2020 um, when the first cases of COVID you know started being reported, and we really weren't sure how long this would last. I was in a, a Taco Bell traveling from uh, New York back to D.C. I was in New York. It was my winter break from law school. I was in New York um, with a friend for this law firm networking weekend, and we were driving back, and we saw reports of, um, you know, on CNN of, of kind of forecasting how long the pandemic would last. And the first report that I saw on CNN in that Taco Bell in, like, Delaware or, or Philadelphia or something said – we will be – it literally said on the screen, I remember the, the lead was pandemic may last until 2022 or you know, we will be wearing masks until 2022. We will be social distancing until 2022. And I remember at that you – know, in that moment, I, I was in disbelief. My friend was in disbelief just, just like there's no way that this pandemic in February of 2020 is going to last for two years, right? Like there's no way. And here we are at the beginning of 2022 and – this is still a serious concern. I mean, um, if you haven't been boosted, I mean, for, first of all, every <laughs> everyone needs to get vaccinated. That's just um, there's there's really no excuse uh, if you're if you're an adult um, for for not being vaccinated for for not protecting yourself, your your family, your loved ones, and those around you. Um, if you haven't been boosted, or uh, if you haven't been boosted yet. Um, I think the CDC recommends that that everyone that's uh, eligible to receive the booster receive it. I, I got the booster last Friday. I didn't have any symptoms. I think I was fortunate. No symptoms, no side effects from the booster. And you know, just take precautions. Uh, I know it's exhausting. I you know, the, even the term COVID fatigue. I'm I'm almost exhausted with with COVID fatigue. Uh, you know, with the language behind COVID fatigue, but is the new reality, right? Like like there's. We just we just have to find a way to live with this and go about our lives in a safe and healthy a manner as, as possible. Um, and as I record, Penny, my puppy, who's actually gotten pretty big. It's uh, at the time of this, this release. I think 
she will be around her one-year birthday, and she likes to go under my couch, but then she can't get out. So it's almost like like a bit in uh, you know on like a on like the Three Stooges or something like staff slaps a comedy. She goes under the couch, and probably the next couple minutes she'll be crying for me to to let her out. But anyway, um, yeah. So so just just be safe out there with with the pandemic. Um, and I really, I, you know, I want to say I haven't really mentioned this in a while on the pod, but I, I do appreciate a lot of you guys have been um, leaving some some uh, genuinely, you know, touching reviews for the pod on on Apple Podcast. Um, so I wanted to, to share and, and respond to a couple of those real quick. Um, someone actually recommended that I cut the theme music on the show, and I, I actually I think that's a great idea. I mean, this is the third year pod started in 2019. Um, actually, this might be the fourth year, right? 2019, 2020. So it's the beginning of the fourth year of the pod. And so, yeah, it's absolutely time for a change. I mean, the themes, the theme music is what? Like, I want to say it's like... Yeah, so it's 22 seconds, so... Yeah, that's I, that's a little long. I know when I, when I listen to podcasts, I either like a five second intro or just no intro, just dive into the conversation. Unless it's like a really catchy song, um, but my whatever whatever theme theme music that I created on GarageBand obviously doesn't cut it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that. I should have a, a shorter intro coming soon. So yeah, I mean I appreciate constructive feedback. Someone else mentioned. Getting uh, get your puppy a mic. Um, <laughs> we'll see about that. I don't know um, what what Penny's uh, terms will be and um, how amenable she'll be to sitting still for a full podcast. But uh, I can look into that. Someone else mentioned um, a couple months back that they enjoyed the episode on um, on pain and pleasure, and, and they've begun doing the 007 shower at the end of uh, their morning shower. I, th- I think I, uh, in case you missed that episode with Anna Lemke, we talked about how um, as a way of experiencing moderate pain um, and you know, activating uh, dopamine release, you can uh, at the end in, in, at the end of your regular shower, just take a minute or two and turn the water to, to the coldest possible setting, and just kind of try to embrace it. It's called the 007 shower. Uh, I tried that for a little bit. Unfortunately, I don't do well with cold, so I wasn't able to sustain it. But I'm glad that this this listener um, uh, has been practicing that. Someone else mentioned that they really appreciate the spotlight on mental illness in the podcast and um you know how the world can feel really lonely if you're experiencing anxiety and depression and they appreciated my openness with uh, ocd and anxiety yeah like when i started the podcast back in 2019 four years ago um i mean i I called it nervous habits because the one of the focal points of the show and now penny okay so now she's stuck under the couch <laughs> i told you guys that's what happened um all right i wish maybe i will get get video or something because this is, this is pretty cute all right i think she might be able to get out on her own it's re- really funny all right i'll help her <laughs> okay Hang on. come on penny come out so yeah when i started the show back in 2019 like this definitely i definitely wanted this to be one of the the themes, one of the things that that I spoke about, which was my, um, you know, my lifelong experiences with anxiety and, and OCD, and kind of how I've I've tried to um, reframe that and and rechannel it into a strength instead of something that's that's debilitating me. So I I, I guess I really appreciate that this person uh, values that about the podcast. Um, 
So someone else enjoyed the episode that I did on psychedelics and wanted me to do an episode on the long-term impact of THC and cannabis on the brain. Yeah, I can definitely definitely look into that. Um, I mean, there's there's I feel like there's so much we don't know about THC and cannabis on the brain. That's kind of like a divisive issue um, and kind of a pretty divisive issue veers into like politics and sociology. But yeah, I can I can definitely. Um, sort of look into that, see if I can find someone that might be, um, you know, might have expertise in that area. They also write, you should consider building out a YouTube channel. Your content is fantastic. I bet there are millions of people who would watch your interviews if they were on YouTube. Uh, I don't know about millions, <laughs> millions of people, maybe like like 100 people, a couple dozen. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to do more videos. Uh, I released the video on YouTube with um, Pyle Kadekia, uh, or I'm going to release it in uh, late January, but at the time of this release, it will already be out. So hopefully people respond well to that. And yeah, I mean, I'll continue to, to uh, release those videos. Um, the last one that I, <laughs> uh, the last review I'll share with you guys really quickly, because uh, I know we have to get to the episode. I just found this one really funny. Someone writes, you talk really fast. <laughs> That's the review. Uh, listen, hundreds, hundreds of podcasts over the years. Yours is the only one that I cannot listen to at 1.5 speed because it's too fast for me. Want to let you know that you're my only 1.25 podcast. Yeah, I remember back when I first started Nervous Habits, I used to read emails from fans on the pod. Um, I don't really do that anymore because most people interact on socials and I don't get a lot of emails. But one of the first emails I got, I think this was even from like a friend or family member, was just like, dude, slow down. <laughs> um, and this is before. So nowadays, if you listen to podcasts on Spotify and Apple, you can speed it up. You can listen at 1.52 speed, which is amazing, and I appreciate it because a lot of times some of the hosts on the other podcasts I listen to, they speak at this speed, and I find myself wanting them to just get to the point, you know, because when someone talks at this speed while you're vigorously exercising or doing dishes, it just feels like listening to the podcast becomes a waste of time. And also it's just not my it's not my personality to to you know speak slowly or whatever. But so yeah, someone recommended that. I think I, I think I, I slowed down a tiny bit, but inevitably reverted. But I just found that funny that that person wrote that. Anyways, um I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, I I was reading the reviews that were coming in. I that I genuinely deeply appreciate them and um and yeah, like, you know, if you haven't rated or, or reviewed or subscribed on Apple Podcasts definitely would would love if you if you do that. Um, so on to today's episode. I never thought that I'd be doing a podcast about nihilism. Um, I mean, I, I haven't really known a ton about nihilism before. Doing sort of like like a deep dive onto Wikipedia about the history of nihilist philosophy, and then uh, obviously reading Wendy Seifert's book, which we'll discuss. But it turns out that nihilism actually overlaps with some of the major themes of nervous habits, um, such as our fear of death and dying. Um, our unwillingness to reflect, and my personal favorite, the notion that we're all living inside a simulation, which we actually do discuss in this episode. And I do think that nihilism in many ways is not not really well understood. I, I think it gets a bad rap um, for reasons that, that we'll discuss. And that's part of why, and you guys will hear this more in the debrief after the episode, I've kind of opened up a little bit to the possibility of not necessarily being a, a full, you know, fully fledged nihilist, but like incorporating some ideas of nihilism into my 
into my life because I do think a couple of things that uh, Wendy Seifert writes about, a couple of the beliefs in nihilism are actually kind of healthy to practice and to assimilate into whatever your belief system is. And this is all part of what I discussed with my guest this week, journalist Wendy Seifert. So a little bit about Wendy. Wendy Seifert is the former head of editorial for Vice Australia and an award-winning writer, editor, and author whose work has appeared in ID and The Guardian. Her latest book, The Sunny Nihilist, A Declaration of the Pleasure of Pointlessness, presents the optimism and nihilism to encourage us to dismantle our self-care and self-centered way of living and accept a life more or less ordinary. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Wendy. Um, I learned a ton. And stay tuned after the episode because I'll have a lot more to say on some of the topics and ideas that we discuss in our conversation. So without further ado, my conversation with Wendy Seifert. Wendy Seifert, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be with you. You're, you're calling in from Melbourne, Australia, where, where you just informed me that you're currently like 15, 16 hours ahead of me. So good morning to you and, and good afternoon to me from the past. Um, yeah, the future is bright so far. Yeah. So I guess the first question to ask you as we, as we start our uh, venture into nihilism is, have you always identified as a nihilist? And if not, when did that shift take place for you? It's funny. I definitely haven't. I kind of had quite a clear conversion to nihilism, which sort of opens the book where I, like a lot of people, was experiencing a period of like pretty severe burnout and just kind of total disenfranchisement with my life and my job and like all the choices I'd made. And I was really kind of on the edge of what I think in hindsight probably was a bit of a breakdown. And I was walking home from work one day, literally like trying to not have a panic attack before I got in my house. And it was kind of late at night and I was leaving the office after working on some like bullshit task that I don't even remember. And I had this like very clear moment where, again, I was sort of trying to do box breathing on the side of the street to not pass out. And I just had this flash of this realisation where I was like, actually just like, who cares? Like, who cares about this? Who cares about me? one day I'm going to be dead and it's like no one is going to care about what, like all this stuff I'm working on. And I think that maybe in a different setting, in a different like brain, that would have been kind of a heartbreaking realisation. But to me it was just this like crashing sense of relief and sort of like liberation from all the bullshit that I'd sort of like entangled myself in. And I think that to me at that moment I didn't know I was having like a nihilistic, you know, epiphany. But I think that sort of thinking led me to this path where I started kind of exploring nihilism and thinking about it more. But I think in the time since then, even though I, I don't think I would have ever have called myself a nihilist beforehand, when I actually track back over my life and I reflect on the decisions I made and some of like the conversations I've had that have felt particularly poignant, I realized that I think there was this seed of it within me this whole time. I just probably didn't have the language for it yet. Yeah, and you actually do a beautiful job in the book, Wendy, sort of putting into words almost like a mission statement for nihilism. And you write um, that this realization you speak of um, was, uh, who cares, one day I'll be dead and no one will remember me anyway. And you also write, I'm just a chunk of meat hurtling through space on a rock, futile and meaningless. And I definitely agree that there's almost that that double-sided coin of 
uh, you know, as you write a sense of relief that's brought upon by that, but also almost a sense of dread. And we'll talk a lot about that throughout our conversation. Just just a sense of, of hopelessness and cynicism. If, if this is all that that life amounts to, you know, why why keep why keep going on? Why keep going forward? So would you say at this point um, in your life, since that's happened, you've really come come into nihilism? You've you've embraced it since then? Yeah, I would say I have. I think whenever you write a book like this, there's always this feeling of, you know, I started working on this book like over two years ago and there were a few moments where I was like, oh shit, what if like by the time this comes out, I don't feel like this anymore. But I am proud to say, I think it has only solidified in my thinking as it has come along. And now I do like very much consider myself a nihilist. And I think when I say that to people who don't know me, don't know the book, it's probably a bit of a shock because I am a pretty like peppy person by design. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I can vouch for it. It, it sticks around. Well, that's why, you know, that's why the book is called The Sunny Nihilist. And, and we'll talk all about the um, sort of the, the lesser known virtues of nihilism. When most people think about it, though, uh, when they hear nihilism, they, they associate it with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who you write a lot about in your book. Would you say, would you characterize him as, as sort of the first well-known nihilist? Yeah, I would. He didn't coin the term nihilism. It had been kind of kicking around a little bit before then. But I think when we... For good and bad, and I mean, there are a lot of different ways you can explore that. I think our modern understanding of what nihilism is, he is the grandfather of that. And, you know, in, in sort of learning about Nietzsche uh, as an undergraduate, I mentioned I studied philosophy. And I think folks who have that background also you know, are aware that, that he's associated usually with existentialism. So what's, you know, I, I, I'd imagine there's an overlap, but are existentialism and nihilism sort of cut from the same cloth or are they basically indistinguishable? What, what's the connect there? I mean, I guess it's like anything. I try and see philosophy as like a very fluid, very kind of personal thing. I often say it's kind of a window that you peer through and you kind of see whatever you're going to see on the other side. I see them as very much like an extension of each other. You know, existentialism, I think people think a lot more of like Sartre and, you know, Simone de Beauvoir and the kind of like, mid-century French scene, I would say that is very much the kind of modern evolution of nihilism in a way. And I think a lot of people, I wouldn't say existentialism is is softer than nihilism because I don't want to position nihilism as this like very dark, hard thing, but I think it has maybe, it's a bit more approachable. Nihilism is very much like nothing matters, you don't matter, whereas existentialism is a little bit more like, why does this matter? What does it mean to matter? (laughs) <laughs> yeah so okay so I'm, I'm i'm trying to to wrap my mind around this so nihilism is maybe just the concept just the idea and existentialism is probing the why like the underlying reasons b- behind that um do you think then nihilism might be more palatable for people i think existentialism maybe tends to be more palatable because i think it's a little bit more flexible it's probably like a more of an open book nihilism it starts with the cell that like life is meaningless. And I think for a lot of people, it's really hard to get past that. And it's like, even if you find reason or rhyme within that concept, maybe that first step is just like too brutal to cross. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think existentialism is probably a little bit more, you know, thinking about meaning more generally. And I think it's probably a little bit easier to spin into whatever you want it to be. But I mean, I think all philosophy is like that. And you can see through <laughs> history, it can be useful, good and ill in any way. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, students of philosophy listening would probably agree with you that, that you know, it, it's it's just an instrument that you can kind of bend um, to 
suit whatever argument or perspective um, you're seeking to construct. In the book, something I enjoyed is you talk a lot about the utility of nihilism because I think people listening will get into some of the criticisms. I think they won't be surprised to hear why nihilism is such a difficult pill to swallow. But you talk about you know the example of Malcolm Gladwell hiring his first assistant. Um, just because he was too lazy to interview anyone else and sort of the other applications of nihilism on, on a daily life. So for people listening who are maybe on the fence about nihilism, you know, w- what are some other uh, ways in which it might benefit you to, to adopt a nihilistic mindset? I mean, in my personal life, I think there are two ways it comes into play in like a daily sense. And this isn't me sitting down and reading philosophy textbooks. This is me, you know, on a Zoom call trying to like navigate what I'm going to say next. I think the first one is it frees me from a lot of bullshit in the sense that we all get very entangled in these parts of our lives that feel very, very big and can feel incredibly overwhelming and important. But I think if we actually ever took the time, which we don't really do because we're not conditioned to, to take a breath and step back and say, okay, why do I, why am I thinking this? Like, why does this matter? Why do I care so much about this thing? Why am I putting so much energy into this? I mean, this is the very existentialist part of it. When you start breaking down what you're actually talking about, it kind of comes apart really quickly. And suddenly you're just like, I am an upright ape sitting on an expensive, like a piece of furniture talking into a cube, just like literally who cares what like the marketing strategy is or whatever. Um, Which I think in a day-to-day life sometimes can take the stressful and make it feel very absurd and kind of fun and just very freeing. I think the other side of it, and I talk a lot about this in the book, is it's one thing to say, okay, meaning is a construct, purpose, all that like kind of like social systems around that are constructs and are created to control us or whatever. But I think when you start thinking like this, it gives you a bit of an avenue to say, okay, if everyone is trying to tell me that this thing is important or that I'm supposed to care about this behaviour or this action or this value, who is actually telling me this and what am I getting out of it? And what's this other person or this other power system getting out of it? And I think that comes into play a lot when we talk about nihilism in relation to work, this idea of I have been told that my job is very important, that I am very important in this role, that my work is very important. But where is this actual value being served to? It's not being served to me because I'm having a horrible time. Is it really being served to like the public? I don't think so because this job seems kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. Or is it being served to someone who's getting paid a salary with an extra couple of zeros on the end above me, who is just giving me a very good spin to try and convince me that my job isn't meaningful. So I think it can also be a way to like navigate points of like exploitation in your own life. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack there, Wendy. I love the the analogy you made, you said that in the grand scheme of things, we're all just upright apes staring at a cube who cares about the marketing strategy. I, I can imagine to people listening that that's a, you know, that resonates quite powerfully. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's, there's dangerous repercussions there, which I guess tie into the criticisms of, of nihilism, which is like, and this is a quote from the book, if nothing matters, if you have no purpose and if morality is a fantasy, then what's the point of anything? You know, why, why get out of bed in the morning or earn money or look after yourself? And, and you, you know, you, you, you do, you do acknowledge this in the book. Um, but you know, I mean, you, you sort of, if, if if you sit with that, this idea for a moment, it kind of makes everything a little meaningless, doesn't it? But then I think that comes back to how we have been taught what meaning is supposed to be. And that's kind of what you're trying to reject. If you believe 
that your life only matters because you are serving effectively a capitalist machine or you are performing for attention or you are achieving a list of goals, whether that's buying a house, getting married, having 2.3 kids, having X amount of like LinkedIn followers because a bunch of people hundreds of years ago, maybe not the LinkedIn thing, established this idea that that is what a good and proper life looks like. So if you reject those things, suddenly your life is valueless. Mm -hmm. I think that's when you get into this idea of like nihilism as a way to interrogate why do we feel the things that we actually feel? Because, and this is what a lot of the book is about, but it's what I really feel. We're told all these like massive, stressful, kind of confusing things that ask a lot of us and ask us to sort of like a function in a society that often exploits us are really important. But if you were actually to go up to someone and say like, like today, what are the things that made you feel like truly safe and happy and like pleasurable today? They're not going to be like, oh, I like really nailed that. I don't know. I keep making everything about Zoom, but it's because I'm like, I work remotely from home. I really (laughs) nailed that like presentation I did. It's like, I'm drinking a really delicious cup of coffee. I let my cat out on the balcony before and it's one of those like early summer mornings where it's not hot yet, but it's beautiful and like the day is quiet. Mm. Um, My boyfriend gave me a hug when he was half asleep and it made me feel really nice. It's like the things that actually make your life worth living are completely divorced from the things that you have been told make your life like meaningful. But the structures that we're told to like chase to create a meaningful life take us so far away cognitively, physically, emotionally from these tiny little things that technically don't matter, but I guarantee you are the things that are actually why you're getting out of bed in the morning. I love the lens of using nihilism or really any philosophical or religious ideology as a way of interrogating your values. I think that that's, that's a beautiful approach to take. And, um, you know, you talk a lot about this in the book, the idea that like the world is so teeming with, with meaning or, or with, things that, uh, you know, appear to be meaning at first, whether that be an app that, you know, reads you your horoscope or an Instagram ad that, that, you know, tells you that you have to, um, you know, act self-actualize in some way or, or, you know, meditate, repeat meditation mantras. And I do like the idea that, uh, that, you know, meaning is most valuable when it's seen as, an end point, not as uh, almost like, a you know, an end in, instead of a means. Uh, so I, I really did appreciate that that was one of the um, points that you kept coming back to in your book. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I, again, you know, the parts of the book that personally have stuck with me, this kind of like commodification of meaning and meaningless meaning and like the cheap offering of meaning as everything is meant to be meaningful. I mean, part of it is kind of like gross and upsetting but also once you kind of see it, it's also like really funny to me. My friends and I always text each other like kind of inane, meaningful conversations. And I give a lot of examples of them. But um, one I've seen recently that I've been like laughing about is I was in the supermarket the other day and there was like a packet of tampons and it said, there's a revolution inside this box. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, just like there's a lot of value in a box of tampons. You don't need to tell me that I'm like a riot girl for using one. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're, you're hitting on something interesting here uh, with respect to marketing, at least a lot of the, the PR is, is about how 
every purchase, no matter how trivial it is, has to be somewhat symbolic or indicative of a greater cause, right? Like buying a box of tampons demonstrates that you're part of the revolution to support women's reproductive rights or buying a pack of gum, buying Trident instead of Juicy Fruit. That's indicative that you support maybe some you know measure of, of freedom in, in, in a different respect. And I think a lot of this ties to, and, and we could talk a lot about capitalism, but the fact that what sells this whole idea of voting with your wallet is people want to ally themselves with causes and with um, movements that they deem to be meaningful. And unfortunately, at least in America and, and perhaps in, in Australia as well, uh, what sells is this this um, veneer of participation in, in movements like this. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, I obviously make a lot of comments about meaning and I roll my eyes a lot about this stuff generally in life. But I mean, if you look back through human history, like the pursuit of meaning is not an objectively bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like most, you know, examinations of like, art and history and politics and all the stuff that we like about, you know, the human race has come from people asking big questions about meaning. I think the problem is that in the past, you might have had a couple of parts in your life where you really like sought meaning in, and you might have spent 60 years pursuing that. And whether that was like religious, religion or philosophy, or maybe it was just your relationship with your spouse that you really cared about and you were super invested in. Mm-hmm. Because of a myriad of reasons, so, you know, we could talk about for the next day and a half, that kind of structure doesn't exist for a lot of people anymore. Like very few of us have the resources to dedicate our whole life to like a quest for fulfillment. But I think that that part of our brain and that desire and that itch is still there. And I'm not denying that at all. Like that is hard coded into us. There's a reason why every civilization has a concept of God, for example. Mm -hmm. But I think what's happened is like a lot of, Again, marketing is an obvious example, but I think you can find other examples. A lot of people have realized if you can kind of dupe that feeling of satisfaction and connection that we kind of are hardwired to get through meaning, but you can short circuit it. So it's like, yeah, through an app or through a consumer purchase or through doing something kind of mundane that you just wanted to do anyway, but you can give a share of meaning to so you don't feel like you're wasting your time. I mean, like credit words do. It's kind of like an incredible like trick of life. Mm. and sometimes when I see people pulling it off like it feels gross but you're also like I mean you know a job well done is a job well done (laughs) (laughs) but I will say like I I do think since the onset of the pandemic um uh back in the I I I guess almost two years ago now right like the beginning of 2020 people are are kind of opening their eyes um a little bit to these issues. And, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, kind of the impact of, of the pandemic on mental health and on reflection. Um, but especially in the context of something like the search for meaning and nihilism, I think that now, in you know, tw- almost th- this podcast is coming out of the beginning of t- 2022, people are for the first time to your point, Wendy, realizing, wait a second, this pitch deck that I'm working on for some client that I'm never going to meet on some issue that I don't really, you know, give a shit about um, doesn't amount to anything in the grand scheme of my existence. So d- do you think that there has been a shift in, in you know, this, this sort of thinking since the onset of, of COVID? Yeah, I do. And I actually have become super interested in this, like in the past couple of months, because I've also observed that. And I think it ties back to something that I often think about with nihilism, where when kind of approached in a way that I feel is non-destructive and obviously that I outline in my book, which I hopefully people read, 
Um, nihilism can really give you this sense of like the very big and the very small. So we sort of talked about that before, this idea of when you interrogate what your life is actually made up of, it's of all these tiny little moments that you ignore that mm. actually probably really enjoy. But also, like, as you said, when it's one thing to say, my life is meaningless, no one's going to remember me. Okay, this is great. I'm going to like stop and smell the roses or like drink this cup of coffee a little bit more slowly. But unfortunately, I'm sure like most people like me, you know, we still have to get up and go to work and like pay the rent and feed the cat and stuff like that. But I think what it does give you this is this sense of, okay, if I don't matter, no one's actually going to remember me. So how is my time then going to be like contributed to something that sure might not be remembered in a thousand years time, but will probably have some kind of impact that goes beyond my sense of ego and my immediate comfort. And I think that that is being really clearly demonstrated at the moment when you see a lot of people literally like that we have these cases of kids who are dropping out of uni to go work for climate change causes because they're like, mm. well, what difference does it make if I can afford like a second investment property if the planet is literally on fire? Oh, you know, you saw it again with like the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, this idea of it doesn't mean anything if I am safe and I am well, if my community is fundamentally broken and other people aren't able to like live in a way that is respectful as well. So I'm not going to go to work this week and I'm going to take to the streets, even if this issue doesn't directly affect me. I think especially with younger people, we're seeing this like kind of deconstruction of the self and this like expansion of like, well, then how do I then fit into this larger web if my little part of it doesn't mean as much as I thought it did? I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that there is sort of more of a, of a of an acceptance of not necessarily nihilism, but just just this this greater idea of you know understanding that the old world traditional means of how to live your life like are a little outdated. I think there's more of an understanding of that um, in today's uh, generation, in, in Gen Z, and in I guess millennials, millennials, and you actually write in the book. Um, which I appreciated. You said, in place of 19th century philosophers scribbling by candlelight, we now have teens on TikTok jokingly begging the universe to kill them, and meme accounts LOLing about the meaningless of, of me, excuse me, meaninglessness of life. So, why do you think that uh, millennial and Gen Z content, for example, whether that be memes or, or TikToks or gifs, why do you why do you think that it's so dark and, and weird, as you call it? I mean, I think all young people are funny and all generations think the generation below them is cracked. And yeah. ours just happens to be like on TikTok as opposed to like being sprawled on like a bathroom stall in Sharpie. Um, I think there's, I was talking to someone about this the other day, actually. And I, there's this idea of, you know, a lot of these like sense of meaning and purpose are, as you said, held together by these old world values, whether that's kind of like um, the nuclear family, traditional religion, uh, classic understandings of democracy and capitalism. And I think for, you know, boomers and people, our parents and our older siblings, a lot of people grew up in a world where, yeah, those systems were obviously flawed, but they basically were, they were kind of working and it was hard to imagine the world existing in any other way. Like, I think if you talk to someone 15 years ago and you explain to them how everyone was talking about the end of capitalism now, it would be like talking about the end of civilization now. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think for people... I am 34, so, I mean, I'm probably, like, you know, I'm not exactly, like, a Gen Z TikTok kid. Everyone loves a millennial referencing a TikTok kid. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, for people my age and younger, we literally, you know, everyone loves talking about coming of age in the shadow of the GFC and, like, 9-11. But millennials witnessed 
all these like impenetrable structures just completely shattering. And I think there's no way you could look at that and not kind of ask, okay, well, these things that were sold to us is like the foundational constructs of civilization mm. clearly don't work. So I think that's a pretty good bedrock for you to start asking questions about like, well, if everything I was told to believe is wrong, what I believe in now. And then I think with kids even younger than us growing up in it, they didn't even witness the end of it. They just like grew up in the deluge of it. So I think when you start introducing these ideas of like meaninglessness or trying to think of radical new ways to live, it's not as scary for them because they didn't have to, they don't have to like divorce themselves from this like understanding of what the world used to be like. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I also think more concretely, you mentioned climate change earlier. You mentioned racial justice. I think that some of this dark humor has to do with just the sheer hopelessness that we're facing as, as a human race. And um, the fact is, and, and listeners know, because I had on um, the director and producer from um, the Netflix series, um, Our Planet, to talk about climate change. The fact is, the earth is going to be uninhabitable within the next century. Um, that's just, I mean, the, uh, we're experiencing just, just a complete destruction of biodiversity to rainforests um, in the oceans. Combine that with the just corrosive um, political and social divide in our country, the soul crushing gap between the rich and the poor, the never ending pandemic. I mean, this is, as I said earlier, to, you know, year three of, of COVID. Is it any wonder that people are, you know, joking that the universe should kill them and, and the life is meaningless? That, that nihilism actually kind of makes sense now to young people. Well, I think to people older than us, you know, to say life is meaningless, it seems like such a scary concept. And I know when I told my mom I was working on this book, she was kind of like, oh God, Wendy, like, are you okay? Um, <laughs> even though like she was indirectly like inspired huge parts of it. But as you said, if you're like a 19 year old kid his whole life, you've been told that like, we're in the last century. The idea that your life might not have a purpose is not that scary. The collapse of like the natural world is scary. So I think there's also a reframing of like what people find intimidating when the stakes are so much higher. I think, again, the dissolution of self or this idea that maybe your life doesn't matter as much as you thought. It's not such a hard concept to actually swallow where your whole understanding of the world is really like, I need to be this ant in this army fighting to try and literally save the planet. So as much as I, I definitely see eye to eye with you on, on why that should compel people to be nihilist, I also think the fact that it's such an uphill battle, the fact that you know, even if all of us today with 100% certainty committed to fighting climate change, if every single country joined forces, it's, it's, it's still like, it would be such, so difficult to overcome those odds. I'm wondering if, if that makes being nihilistic, um, an unworthy cause, if that makes sense for people listening who are like, because I'm an ant, because it doesn't matter. Um, you know, what difference does it make if I committed to these issues, given that they're so, potentially insurmountable do you know what i mean like it could 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 end up going both ways yeah i totally understand that i mean like i have no denial that like there is a toxic side of nihilism i think if you look back there is a lot more evidence for being destructive than you know you have the whole of reddit compared to like my book in terms of the argument of like the good mm. and the bad sides of nihilism but i mean i guess that kind of gets to a more general concept about like activism and how do you engage people in activism more generally I, in my own life, am very involved in climate change. It's, it, that work is the biggest sort of focus of my day-to-day -day life and my work. But, I mean, that idea of, like, if I am an ant, then if I can't make a difference, what's the matter? I think that kind of gets back to this idea of, like, 
we have been so conditioned to be told that like everything is about us. Like we need to like save the world and make a difference and like you can do it and you're the center of the universe. So I think that there's this like sort of feeling that, well, if you take away that sense of power, then well, everything is hopeless. And then if I can't do it and I can't fix it, then what's the fucking point of doing anything? Which to be honest, I actually find really frustrating from like an activism point of view, because I think it is quite an arrogant way to look at the world. I think the, not to get into like, you know, just my soapbox here, or my climate soapbox, people are so much more powerful than they realize when they work as a collective. And I think we have such an individualist society where we think that like, one incredible politician is going to rise up and save the day. One incredible scientist is going to come along and fix everything. And maybe we'll be that one person or maybe that person won't exist. The reality is like no one person is going to save us. It needs to be this collective massive wave of change with like everyone rooting their life towards the central goal, whether that's through whether you recycle, even though recycling isn't as impactful as people think it is, or literally just voting or like moving your money into a responsible bank. There are huge things that single people can do that on their own are not going to save the world and it will create fundamental change that, yes, the future is going to look very different, but we could create a version of like reality where at least, you know, maybe our kids can still go to the beach at some point. And I was at a a talk a few years ago um, where a woman, I I wish I could remember who was on the panel, but it it was kind of discussing ideas around colonialism and uh, gender and uh, and the environment and someone got up and they were like what can I do to like save the world or save the day and someone on the panel was just like can you understand how arrogant and crazy it sounds that you're standing up here and you think that your only role in this is to save the day and be like a hero and I just think we need to break out of that idea that like we are the center of the world and we're going to fix things and really try and be like you have to accept your smallness and just believe in it and just do what you can with it. Yeah, I I, th- I think that's that's really beautifully put. Rather than you know one person trying to be the superhero that's going to lift lift the earth to its salvation, we should just kind of accept the fact that we're ants. But you know, a, eight billion ants working together might be able to actually move us towards our goal. So I think that's a really nice reframing of the issue. Um, one of the I don't know if this is the uh, objections, to, uh, if this is one of the objections to nihilism, but one of the things that I think people listening might be curious about is, you know, when when asking someone like, what's the purpose of life? One of the answers that they they usually give is love, you know, whether that be romantic love or love for, for family, love from friends. So if, if we adopt nihilism as our central ideology, what would a nihilistic approach to love look like? Would we have to surrender any, any you know, belief in, in love? I think where nihilism and love intersects, and I mean, obviously, nihilism kind of reacts differently to different subjects. But the thing that I find really interesting is, again, this idea that nihilism is a is a rejection of meaning. And I'm always very interested in like, what are the the social structures that have designated the huge kind of understandings of meaning that we sort of like, you know, subscribe to. And with love, the most obvious example of that is like romantic love and I guess the nuclear family. And something that I think about a lot is we really see love as this like universal monolith that we all experience in the same way. And it all looks the same to everyone. And we never really stop and think about the idea that 
love is something we are taught how to love in the way that we do, whether that, again, is through like movies or TV or songs or marketing campaigns or, you know, medieval troubadour poems. <laughs> like the idea that you go on a first date and you tell someone I love you and you buy someone a bunch of red roses or a tin cup for an anniversary or whatever all these things that feel so like stitched into like our organic experience of being human we have been taught how to do but I mean obviously the chemical reaction of having a response to someone and loving someone that feeling inside you is real I think it's more the way it looks and the way you're being told to express it and what to expect from it is learned so I in my own life really try and divorce those two things and again I think it's this question of saying if you love someone and they make you feel good and you feel safe around them and your body is having its huge dopamine release whenever they're around, like that's real and that should be celebrated. Mm. But I think when we start putting all these expectations on ourselves of what love is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function and perform, and then we get kind of frustrated and upset when the person we love doesn't say the exact right thing or doesn't unpack the dishwasher on time or doesn't behave like they're Hugh Grant in like the 90s. (laughs) rom-com and we just feel so shattered by it and again I think it just is that idea of it pulls us away from the thing that's actually special which is this person makes me feel good in my body somehow Mm. and it just makes us feel disappointed because we're not like performing perfectly to this kind of display that someone set up for us that we never actually question or interrogate so I know in my own life I again I, I have a partner who I'm very close to but I also have a best friend who I would consider to be like a soulmate. I have siblings who I feel unbelievably close to. And I often think that I don't ask everything of my partner. I don't expect him to be a complete mind meld with me to have all the same interests as me to get every single one of my jokes. I feel safe and happy with him. I need to like fit into this box of like what a relationship looks like. Absolutely, Wendy. And and I think I think that from from what you're saying, it also sounds like nihilism might be an instrument for people to to be able to better appreciate those they love instead of just um, looking at love as as you said, uh, sort of you know holding people to those uh, un, unattainable standards of of perfection and you know being disappointed if if someone doesn't do if if a uh, you know a partner doesn't act in the way that you expect them to. Nihilism might allow you, it sounds like, to, to just appreciate them for, for who they are and refocus your, 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 um, you know, your emotion on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm always careful to say, like, I'm not saying you should have no standards. Like, your partner should still unpack the dishwasher sometimes. <laughs> but I think it's, um, it's more like, you know, when I find myself feeling, like, lost in, you know, a fight or in a, you know, you're having a bad day with someone you love. I mean, it doesn't just have to be a romantic partner. It could be with a parent or a friend. Mm. I do try and at least step back and ask myself, like, why do I think that it should look like this? And is do I think it should look like this because I have a fantasy that I formed from childhood of what, like, my long-term life partner would be? Mm-hmm. And in that case, maybe I need to interrogate it. Or it's like, do I want something to be different because I know I fundamentally need some something more from this person to feel, you know, safe and secure and valued? And I think... Obviously, there are some situations where you should ask more from someone. But again, I think it's just a way to kind of like divorce yourself from expectations someone else set for you that you had no control of. And I mean, that's another thing I would say about nihilism. 
you don't have to read this book and come out of it and be like a card carrying nihilist. But I think there are some kind of like little, you can be like a demi nihilist and take little bits and pieces. And I think there's part of it where it's, we have all these structures and systems that are placed on us. And maybe it's a bit of a call as well to be like, you can kind of create your own structures and systems if you want them. You can make your own definitions of what a relationship is, what a job is, mm-hmm. um, what religion is. You have that freedom because it's all made up anyway. So you may as well make something up. <laughs> Right. I love that. I love that. Just kind of take elements. I mean, lots of people do that with other religions. We'll, we'll talk about religion in a moment, but um, instead of subscribing to every single tenet of the religion, just take things that are pragmatic and um, healthy for you and, and apply them to your life. So, so, so I mentioned a moment ago that if you were to ask someone on the street, kind of like, what's the meaning of life? Um, one answer is love. Another answer, Wendy, might be the meaning of life is to create new life, is to have children um, and kind of, you know, have a legacy and extend your life through through their lives. But a lot of people who believe in nihilism uh, choose not to have children for either to keep them from suffering or so as not to contribute to some of the issues that we mentioned before, like climate change. So is having children irreconcilable with being a nihilist? I am very conveniently five months pregnant at the moment. So congratulations. (laughs) you can appear into some of my existential midnight thoughts. Um, I mean, I think the, obviously I'm not going to tell anyone whether they should or shouldn't have kids. And even as someone who's very involved in climate change and I'm surrounded by a lot of people who choose not to, I personally always really wanted to have a kid. I think for me, this comes back to this idea of, I don't know, one of like the most baffling things to me, and I guess it's why I wrote this book, is I don't understand why life not having a like, you know, an inscribed meaning that, you know, you can hang on the pool room wall makes life worthless. Some can be pointless, but it doesn't mean it's totally worthless. Mm. So for me, you know, I don't, I guess, effectively believe in anything. I don't believe in God. I don't think that there is some, I don't think there is a single soul made out there waiting for me. I don't think that there is some celestial paradise with my name on the door waiting for me to walk through it. I don't think that there is any point in my career that I will ascend to where I will become some kind of like superhuman version of myself that will never be forgotten to time. But as I said before, I enjoy my life. I think that the planet is beautiful. I spend a lot of time fighting for it. I think that people around me are funny and special and kind and make me feel good. I had the most delicious avocado yesterday, which I could not have enjoyed more. Mm. And I'm going to have this child and I really hope that she eats delicious avocados too and has friends that she loves. And I just think there's so much fun and pleasure and joy and beauty in the world. I don't know why that's not enough for us. Why also then has to have some like huge like crescendo at the end. I often feel like the planet is kind of so celestial in itself. Why can't we just enjoy that? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I took a day off work and I drove down the coast and I was swimming in the ocean on an empty beach and I could feel like my baby kicking for the first time. And I mean, that's magical. It's totally pointless. It doesn't change the world at all. It's not going to make any difference. No one will remember that except me. And one day I'll die and no one's going to know that that little moment existed. But I mean, that little moment was maybe one of the happiest moments of my life and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I think that the idea that something is pointless means that it's valueless is kind of very sad to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, um, obviously like, like I think, I think for a lot of people moments like the one you described, 
which in the grand scheme of things, like you said, are, are kind of, you know, valueless are, you know, the, the most important ones. Um, you know, th- there is money, there is kind of an elephant in the room here, something that we haven't acknowledged yet. And you touched on it in one of your responses earlier when you said that you don't believe in God. And that's the whole concept of religion and, and how this fits into, into this piece. And we talked earlier about uh, Nietzsche and he had the widely quoted uh, statement, God is dead. And so it seems like Nietzsche is, and as you said, one of the, the most well-known nihilists is quite literally saying that nihilism is incompatible with a belief in a higher power. Would you agree with that? I think this gets back to what I was saying before, where it's, I, I mean, the whole point of this book is that you shouldn't tell people what to think and how to live their yeah. lives, which is kind of a tricky thing to do when you've written a whole book kind of talking about how you think people should think. Um, so I'm always quite careful with this stuff where I say, you don't have to like agree with everything I say. You don't have to like take every single piece of this book and tattoo it onto your brain and do every single part of it. I think it's more a bunch of kind of questions and prods to say, why do you believe the things you believe? Who told you that? Do these beliefs serve you? Do they make you feel good? And is anyone using them as a way to exploit you for their good over yours? So when it comes to religion, I mean, it's tricky. I, To be honest, I've done a few of these interviews with people who I think really are not into religion and I think want me to say that people shouldn't be religious. My mum, who inspired a lot of this book and the conversation stretching back from when we were little kid, when I was a little kid, that led to a lot of the thinking, is a full-on church lady. It's very much like a Jesus was a socialist kind. Mm. Um, but, you know, I often find it interesting that we have kind of come to a pretty similar worldview, me being spurred by nihilism, her being spurred by her faith, which has kind of met in the middle of this sense of, like, smallness and service to others and sort of like celebration of the everyday in the natural world so I think with religion I'm just kind of like I don't want to tell anyone not to believe in God but I personally that is not my journey I think the thing that I'm just wary of is spirituality can be a really beautiful really powerful thing but as with everything else we've discussed today I think when someone is trying to get you to behave or live your life in a certain way you just always need to be constantly interrogating what's the actual outcome of that what are you getting out of it what are the people that you care about in your community getting out of it mm. and is it a pathway that someone could take advantage of you which very sadly I think you don't have to look very far for examples of religion being exploited in that way but then not you know I'm not a religious person myself but I often find myself defending it I also say, you know, that's something that gives you comfort in the middle of the night and gives you the kind of pleasure and joy that we've been talking about in this like very private sphere, then babe, go for it. Yeah. I mean, look, this is such a a deeply complex issue and uh, people listening, you know, there's uh, might subscribe to any one of the hundreds of religions out there. It's, I do think, uh, you know, the belief in a, in a higher power, um, the contemplation about the origin of the universe and the like, this is not something that I can tell you that, that any book that Wendy can tell you any book that you read might be able to make, make you see things any which way. But the difficulty is 
despite the fact we'll touch on on in a moment the fact that the world has become more secular but there is still among most people the the belief in some god whether that be uh, a god the god um allah uh, any any number of the you know po- polytheistic religions that exist and it just it it does seem like the root the central pillar of nihilism is the idea that um you know, there's there's no meaning in anything that the smallness that exists in all of us, as, as we've spoken about. And it does seem like if someone out there, maybe they were raised in a religious community, maybe they do deeply believe um, that there is a God out there, uh, even if they're not outward, outwardly observant. It does seem like it would be difficult for them to just, uh, you know, surrender to to nihilism. So, I mean, how, how do you how you know, what would you say to people that that fall into that category? Yeah, I mean, I totally understand that. And I mean, I think that's where it also comes back to. I'm not a big believer in absolutes. Like, I don't think that there is any, you know, universal truth in any way we're looking at things. I mean, which probably explains why I'm not super engaged with religion. Um, But I mean, I would apply that to my own book too. Like, you can be interested in nihilism and take learnings from it. And as I said, not be a complete, like, disciple of it. I think you can read it and it could resonate and with how you think about love and work, but you could read the religious part and just be like, yeah, I get it, but not for me. My mom, again, who I said is very religious, read this book and very much enjoyed it and did not agree with any of the religious parts, but, you know, I thought the love part was interesting. <laughs> and I think that that's fine. I think with everything, you like whether it's this book, whether it's a church so many you go to, whether it's some of your Peloton instructors, instructor says, I think the major takeaway is just, you just need to interrogate these ideas for yourself and to not ever take anything as a blanket fact. And if you have done that and you get to the end of it and you're like, I don't believe in capitalism, I think we should save the planet. And I also, you know, truly believe in my whatever spiritual quest I'm on. I'm just like, good for you. I, I, something's been swirling around, around my mind listening to you say that. And and obviously, like, I'm not necessarily uh, challenging your, your, um, you know, your beliefs in, in nihilism, they're quite persuasive. But one of the things that's sticking out in my mind, one of the benefits of religion, uh, in addition to, as you said, the, the solace and the assurance of um, there might be like a, a, you know, something greater is almost the humility that religious that religion provides us with the idea that there is something greater than than ourselves out there. So I'm wondering kind of if we aren't subscribing to uh, any religious tenets, and and if we are nihilists, um, how do we get around the the idea that religion makes us humble? Religion, you know, makes us moral. Religion gives us standards, and and uh, you know, just helps drive us towards becoming better people. Uh, I mean, the goal of you know this book, the goal of I mean, my personal writing and work. I would assume the goal of everyone around us. I wouldn't say the meaning of life, but. I think we're all just trying to find a way to be happy and healthy and well and to find some kind of like moral matrix that lets us understand our lives in a way that makes sense and feels sustainable. To me, that has been nihilism. I think to a lot of people who've read this book, it has been as part of nihilism and has been a part of something else. Mm -hmm. If the way, if your relationship to God is giving you that response and that's what you're getting out of it I'm not going to come in and tell you to like throw the baby out with the bathwater I think that you know if you have something that is making you feel good and you read this book and you're just like disagree I'm just like 
that's fine. Good luck for you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You know, wear sunscreen. Um, And as I said, again, like I, using my mum as an example, again, it's not lost to me that like, I think any of these concepts, if you approach something with like an open heart, a sense of humility, um, and you're willing to embrace your own smallness in like the scope of the universe, in a lot of ways, considering God and considering the void, bring you to the same point. And I mean, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. How do you get there? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, it's like, it's almost like if, you know, if religion makes us humble and makes us feel small, then almost like nihilism can, uh, you know, have us end up in the same, the same position. Like, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And something that, that also, I guess, also, you know, strengthens that perspective is what you mentioned about in the book, the uh, majority of the current generations, uh, including millennials, are less inclined to believe that a belief in God is a prerequisite to a moral life. Like if you if you did a straw poll of the average, um, you know, American now, or, or you know, the average millennial, the average twenty something, thirty something, they're less likely to be uh, religious or, or religious practicing, religious observant than the boomers or the generations before that. So, what do you think is responsible for this shift? Um, recently, and and does it perhaps provide more foundation for nihilism? Yeah, oh my, I mean, the death of religion, I feel like I could spend another two years writing another book about. I find it super interesting. Mm. Um, I think, again, it's you can't put it on one thing. I think the way we live has changed. I think we live further away from our families. I think that we don't have these centralised structures of community, whether that's a synagogue or a temple or a church. I think that a lot of people... A lot of religions haven't kept up with the changing nature of the world. And I think a lot of people are disappointed by that. I think if you're a queer kid that grew up in a sort of less progressive religious setting, even if you had a great personal relationship to faith, I think you would feel pushed out by a lot of institutions. One thing that I do think is really interesting, though, is, as I said, humans evolved alongside religion. Like we have this part of our brain that we are trying to fill with it. And again, it's not lost on me that you could use this book and you can use nihilism or any philosophy to scratch that itch. I think it's pretty interesting the way that things like Peloton have duped the religious structure and the kind of sense of community and sermon and how people get literally addicted to it. Um, I write in the book about I go through stages often of getting like obsessed with different kinds of exercise and my, you know, the sense of calm I have at times felt walking into a Pilates studio is probably not that different to the sense of calm people feel walking into a house of worship, which is probably terrifying. I think that, again, it's just this idea of it's okay to want to have answers. It's okay to, like, try and create your own spiritual and emotional boundaries and to find a place where you feel like you belong, not to sound like a broken record. I think it's just that I want people to have a sense of agency and control in why they believe in those things and why they participate in these ways and that they're always interrogating, that they make sense to them, that we're not just kind of accepting blanket truths from external people, many of whom probably have been dead for thousands of years. Yeah, and I did. I, I did really appreciate. Uh, I mean, the Peloton example, uh, you know, is is well taken. But I appreciate the analogy that you made in the book to 
you know, and instead of back in the day, we had like priests and rabbis. Now we have almost influencers and celebrities who we uh, ascend to period uh, to positions of almost religious worship. And we mentioned earlier how people are searching for meaning on social media now or, or through um, mass uh, adoration of celebrity culture and, and television and film and things like that. Um, so I do think that that sort of shift that's taken place in the last 20, 30 years is more is, is in part responsible for the fact that people um, are are less religious. Um, but I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm curious if if you feel like we talked earlier about how nihilism is, is kind of a double sided coin, how there's utility and there's self-destructiveness. Um, I'm curious if you feel like when kind of making the case for nihilism, the the fact that there's no that people don't actually have a, a subscription to a religious ideology, whether that ends up strengthening the case for nihilism or reinforcing its self-destructiveness. I think that that is kind of equating religion with morality, and I, which I think is kind of tricky. You know, I don't think that you need religion to be a moral anchor. I think if you look back through history, a lot of people who we really admire and who form a lot of our personal thinking weren't religious. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't see the, divorce, the loss of religion as being maybe as kind of like counterintuitive to considering nihilism or that they have to, they can't exist together. But I mean, maybe that's because I don't have, I'm not giving up an idea of God to consider nihilism. It's something I already had kind of previously given up. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, for, for people listening who are learning through nihilism, throwing about nihilism through our conversation that uh, at least for me, and I'm sure for them, like that's come as a surprise that you don't have to surrender your belief in God. If you choose to, um, as you said, kind of take elements of nihilism and adopt them into integrate them into your ideology. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite topics of conversation, which is the idea of the simulation theory. And listen, to, listeners of the pod will know because I talk about this quite a lot, but I'm pretty convinced, Wendy, that our entire reality is essentially a simulation on someone's computer, most likely a future civilization running an ancestor sim- simulation to better understand their ancestors. And when I say this, the simulation theory, the number one criticism I get is, well, if our existence is a simulation, why does anything we do matter? And I bring this up to you because I think there are parallels between simulation theory and nihilism. So I wanted to get your take on, on whether or not you ever considered that. I actually have because um, my 11-year-old nephew is also very interested in the idea of simulation theory. And <laughs> I had a long chat to him about it once walking on a beach. Um, no, I agree. I He said it to me and I think he was kind of spiraling about it. And I was sort of like, well, life's kind of pointless anyway, so what difference does it make if it's in a computer? Um, I don't know, maybe this is me being glib, but as I said before, the sun's still shining in the simulation. I'm still having lunch with my friend who's been overseas and I haven't seen it for a few years. I'm excited <laughs> about that. Um, my dog is still adorable in a simulation. I'm still pregnant in a simulation. I'm sort of like, hey, if the Big Bang created us, if God created us, if some nerd on his computer in a thousand years' time created us, I'm sort of like, it doesn't stop me enjoying my little meaningless life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same thing as as the, you know, we're just ants in on an entire planet. It's like we're just essentially like one bite on, uh, you know, on a hard drive of, 
billions of, of terabytes of data. And you mentioned the matrix in your book, which I appreciate. And you said that like people who take the blue pill buy into the myths of meaning that we're talking about and people who take the red pill are more accepting of this. So I think you can apply that um, either to nihilism or to simulation. And the end result is still you, that people need to make, make peace with their meaninglessness. You call it the pleasure of, of pointlessness. So I, I guess what advice would you have for listeners on, on, um, making peace with that in 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 my in either my theory of a simulation or in your theory of of accepting nihilism. I mean, I guess my one of my major takeaways from the whole thing is don't let your quest for a point and for like a solution one day rob you of like the pleasure in the nothingness of today. So you know, when you're lying in bed stressing about, oh my gosh, am I ever going to like? Be known in my career or am I ever going to meet the one or am I ever going to you know feel emotionally complete in any way don't let them take away from the fact that you probably have a lot of like beauty and pleasure around you today I mean someone I read something the other day that I wish I could remember it was from and they said you know we spend like 80% of our conscious life thinking about the past or the future either thinking about how stuff could have been different or you know remembering how things were or trying to mentally prepare ourselves for like what's about to happen next. And we kind of only dedicate like a fraction of our consciousness to our actual true waking life. I mean, that freaked the hell out of me, especially as someone who like famously like puts on a podcast to like walk into the next room and make a cup of tea. Um, But I think that's just the thing, like don't let your obsession with finding something take away the fact that you actually have a lot around you right now. And there's a lot of joy to be found in that. That's really beautiful. And I will say that that quote, uh, 80% of time is spent about the past and the future. You know, it's true that we're the only uh, species of, of mammal that has the capacity to both uh, think retrospectively about the past and to ponder, to anticipate the future. So I think in that sense, we should be more like, you mentioned you have a cat. I have a dog. We should be more like either cats or dogs. You know, my, my dog, Penny, um, she, she doesn't sit around uh, thinking, you know, I, I really, I botched that presentation today or making arrangements on who's, who am I going to have lunch with tomorrow? What am I, you know, she just lives in the now. She's uh, either taking a nap or she's, you know, uh, smelling, visualizing what's happening out the window. I think in that respect, we do well to almost become simpler, more simple-minded akin to a, a dog or a cat. Um, that way we're not living in the, the past and the future. We're more focused on the present. Oh, hundred percent. My therapist always says to me whenever I'm getting overwhelmed and she's like, no, like right now, what do you need? And I mean, the answer is usually like, I'm just going to go for a walk or like, I just need to get out of my apartment or I need to call someone. I think life is a lot simpler than we kind of make it out to me. I couldn't agree more, Wendy. That, that, that's, a, that's a perfect note to conclude our conversation. To everyone listening, you can purchase Wendy Seifert's book, The Sunny Nihilist, on Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. I'm sure my listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work in general. Uh, I'm at wendyseifert.com, nice and easy. And then on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Wendy Wins, that childhood nickname that you pick up when you're a kid as an a Twitter handle that you can ever put down is serving me well. Wendy Wens? Yep, that's me. <laughs> Wendy Seifert, thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Wendy Seifert. Um, and right out of the gate, I want to I wanna tell you that 
if our conversation made you feel small and insignificant, um, if it made your problems seem a little bit pointless, <laughs> I think that it's important to note something Wendy said for the end of our conversation, which I loved, is just because something is pointless doesn't mean it has to be valueless. You know, like she, she talked about the experience feeling her baby kick for the first time when she was sitting by the beach. Um, I'm sure lots, lots of you, you know, can relate, maybe having had similar experiences that filled you with joy, even though maybe 100, 200 years ago, like no one's going to remember you or, or remember that experience. And I think it's important like to, you know, keep that in mind, like pointlessness isn't really such a bad thing after all. Um, you know, Wendy writes about how we have a lot of meaning in our lives, but it's, it's not real meaning. It's superficial meaning. You know, she says that we wake up to push notifications from horoscope apps, assigning us a cosmic narrative before we have a chance to turn off our alarms. And daily newsletters flood our inboxes, prescribing never-ending tasks and goals to meditate over and mark as complete. In the shower, we listen to podcasts like this one about making the day matter, then towel off and cram a few minutes of mindful journaling about what we manage about what we managed to meaningfully achieve the day before. Um, and I sort of agree with her that you know, this this overabundance of meaning like isn't necessarily a good thing. So what Wendy Wendy argues that meaning is best when there's an endpoint. When it's when it's seen as a light on the horizon to guide us in times of crisis or doubt. Um and you know, I'm I'm inclined to to agree with that. I mean like before reading this book, I hadn't really known much about nihilism other than it was a dollar store word that people like to throw around in arguments like oh you know that's you're being rather nihilistic um but it it like there is there is something kind of um you know th there is something powerful in understanding and accepting ultimately that nothing has meaning um that you know one day you're going to die and I'm going to die and everything that we've both done, everything that everyone's done, will have been for nothing. And um, there's there's a, a terror in that. There's an unsettlingness, un unsettling. There's an unsettling feeling associated with that. Um, and when he actually acknowledges all this, writing that brushing my teeth yesterday morning out of nowhere, it hit me. You're gonna die one day, and that'll be it. All this will have been for nothing. Um, and she felt a seizing terror for a moment before remembering, well, I won't be around to worry about it. Um, and, you know, that's – it's a bit of gallows humor, but it's it's right. You know, who cares? One day I'll be dead. Um, and a lot of this ties into our fear of death. That's something that my personal favorite episode that I've done in this pod, episode 13, um, on how we're all going to die and, and how to come to peace with it. Uh, in the book, Wendy actually writes – that part of nihilism is, is helping people confront their fear of death and experiencing the strange wonder that can come from that. And she says that uh, Dr. Uh, Mir Mirgafori, I think that's how, how you pronounce it, Mir Dr. Mirgafori suggests that people try meditating with the mantra, this could be my last breath. So breathe in and out and know that every single breath that you take might be your last one. And the theory in doing this is that by doing so, you'll work through the terror of dying a little at a time um, by observing what comes to the surface during the practice and confronting each fear until you eventually reach a place of peace. So I do think one kind of takeaway for me 
is that accepting our smallness and our meaningless existences and acknowledging and embracing our mortality and the fact that we're going to die like that's that's healthy and um and that's that's nihilistic right uh something else that i learned and um i'm still kind of processing is the idea that like none of this means that you have to surrender your religiosity you know like you can you can believe all the things that i just mentioned and still believe in some higher power whether that's god or just maybe your spiritual in general um because there is you know there is research that um, belief in religion uh, does have neurological psychological benefits um that obviously the community we talked about this a little bit the community that religion provides is healthy but yeah like i i don't consider myself uh, an incredibly religious person i mean i i um i identify with the jewish faith um, but I'm not, you know, I don't practice religion, uh, as often or, you know, it's not, I guess it's not like as much a part of my identity as it is, uh, for others. But yeah, like I, it is comforting knowing that like, I don't have to surrender my religious beliefs in order to be a nihilist. And I think for people listening, a lot of folks might be in the same boat as me where they're sort of. You know, they identify with the faith, but they're not religious. Some people might be more secular. Like we talked about the death of religion. Um, and Wendy had, you know, pretty convincing explanation for why religions have been, have experienced so much attrition because they just haven't adapted, right? Like they've been slow to accept the fact that like now people are just themselves. People are um, gay and, and uh, trans and queer um, people don't, don't, some people don't identify with gender, um, with the main two genders and a lot of religious institutions either don't understand that or don't accept it. And as a result, younger people, Gen Z, um, they are like, wait a second, why am I gonna, you know, pledge my devotion to this 2000 year old institution that doesn't really understand me and, and doesn't really accept me? Um, and Wendy writes about this, uh, in place of priests and rabbis, we welcome influencers and celebrities who also offer to wipe our souls and body clean. Um, stroll, scrolling through Instagram, passing beautiful people, elegantly exercising, stretching, clutching crystals, and anointing themselves with homemade tinctures and green smoothies, the patterns of devotion are familiar. When I used to take communion to be absolved on a Sunday, I now Google 12-hour cleanses and attempt a salt bath. A salt bath. So it's like... Yeah, like, I mean, and when he mentioned this with, like, walking into Pilates studio, this movement to, like, secularism, it's not necessarily a bad thing. The fact that now people can feel the sense of relief, relief and calmness from going to a gym or being part of an online community, it's not a bad thing. On the other hand, like, yeah, as I said, there are benefits to being part of a church or synagogue or mosque. So, but I do think, like, if the religion's, if religions want to subsist, yeah, they need to be more – not only more open in the ways that I'm talking about but also like just better with with adapting to kind of the, the technology. I don't know – and again, like I'm not super informed on this but I don't know the degree that a lot of um, services take place online or they incorporate um, AV elements into their presentations or um, – 
you know, like, do they, are they on Instagram? Are they on Twitter and TikTok? Again, like, it might be true that they are, in which case, um, you know, this doesn't apply. But if they're not, then this might be a way that they can, uh, you know, maybe it'll resonate more with young people. But anyway, so that was uh, that was another another uh, key takeaway for me. And the last thing that was interesting uh, is. We talked a lot about the self-destructive nature of nihilism. Like when when people think about um, nihilism, they just think about like hopelessness. And okay, if you accept the fact that we're nihilists, then we have no reason to get out of bed every morning. And um, and I do think you know Wendy did present a, a pretty strong argument for like the like the utility of it as well. But it does call to mind um, the show The Good Place, which is uh, one of my favorite. Um, comedies, although it's not really a comedy, it's like a, a dramedy. It, it's it's it doesn't really fit in one genre. Um, but if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. It's the whole show is like a philosopher's uh, wet dream. It's all about a um, well, I don't want to give I don't want to give too much away. But one of the characters name's Chidi. He was a uh, uh, like a professor of philosophy and a PhD student in philosophy that's obsessed with um, ethics and. Um, you know the the proper ethical philosophy and how to how to lead your life, whether it's utilitarianism or moral relativism, moral absolutism, um, Kant's theories. And in one episode, and Wendy actually writes about this in the book, uh, which was awesome to read. But in one episode, Chidi um, concludes that you know what nihilism is the only logical philosophical view. And in the episode, he's sort of. Uh, you know, hits rock bottom. I don't even remember like why, uh, what, what was, what was the reason for that? But he hit rock bottom, and um, he shows up to class to teach um, a, a lecture on ethics, and he's in a small lavender wine T-shirt, stirring peeps. You, you know the the stuffed marshmallow birds for Easter, stirring peeps into a big pot of, of chili. And in fact, if you want to watch this video, I highly recommend it. Just search Chidi Goes Insane and Eats Peeps Chili on YouTube. Um, and as he's stirring the, the peeps into the chili, he's telling students, um, he's, he's trying to advise students on like what what the, the, the key moral philosophy is um, while he's in this, this sort of like spiral. Um, and... Uh, you know, and, and and as I said, he he eventually says, you know what, nihilism is the answer. Um, and the top comment to this video, if you actually go on YouTube, it says, um, well, well, okay, the, the first top comment is I sometimes forget how how ripped Chidi actually is, which is very true. And the second comment is this is the most visceral demonstration of the self-destructive dangers of nihilism a philosophy teacher has ever given. So. I think there is there is something to that, right? Like surrendering to nihilism, at least in this show, was the result of Chidi at his, at his lowest point. And I think for some people, you know, embracing nihilism, embracing the idea that like nothing we do means anything and we're all ants on a planet that's dying, like that's – that's that, you know, might be something that we contemplate when we're at our lowest point, much like Chidi stirring the peeps. But – I also think like and, – and this is something like like I've really tried to internalize and I've men definitely mentioned on the pod before. But understanding our smallness, the triviality of our existence, like it doesn't have to be this tremendously depressing pill to swallow. You know, like I remember we uh, – I remember I talked to Avi Loeb, the astrophysicist from um, Harvard. 
uh, earlier, I think it was the beginning of, of last year, 2021. And he, and he basically, in the episode, postulated that we're all ants fighting atop a single grain of sand on the beach that is the universe. So, I mean, if that doesn't make you feel small, like nothing will, right? Um, so whether it be in the context of the planet and the um, the battle uh, against climate change or in the context of like the entire universe, like we're, we're small, like you're small, I'm small, like Tom Holland is small, uh, Zendaya is small. <laughs> I'm just thinking of them because I just saw the new Spider-Man movie. Like, no matter who who you are, like you're like we're, we're all we're all small. Um, but that's okay. And and I just I love the the language of just because it's pointless doesn't mean it's valueless. That's something that I'm definitely gonna remember. So I really loved speaking with with Wendy Seifert, and uh, definitely check out her book, The Sunny Nihilist. So I've got some really exciting stuff right around the corner. Keep it locked here for more nervous habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram, at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter, at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube by searching Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod at Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, my life, your life, all of our lives probably don't matter and there's no meaning in any of it. But you should still get out of bed every morning. You should still feed your dog or cat or bird or fish and you should probably still do your dishes. Take care and stay nervous.